This is the Commonplace Book for the week of April 21st, 2019. And instead of the usual miscellany of facts, dates, birthdays, and sort of other historical trivia, which may or may not be linked in some fashion known only to the host, I thought we would jot something down in our audio Commonplace Book, which had a lot to do with historical thinking. A few months previous, I talked about reading comprehension and its importance. I thought that this week, I would make a few notes to you about sourcing. It's an ungainly word, a verb formed from a noun, but it's hard to think of a better one. But what exactly is sourcing? What kind of cognitive skill is it? San Weinberg, who, if you listen to episode 100, talks a lot about the Stanford History Education Group, offers the following questions, which are, as a composite, a definition of what sourcing is. Here they are. First, who wrote this? Second, what is the author's perspective? Third, why was it written? Fourth, when was it written? Fifth, where was it written? And sixth, finally, is this source reliable? Why and why not? Let's take a concrete example as a way of thinking about what sourcing means. Let's say it's about Washington crossing the Delaware in December of 1775. We might have a soldier's memoir of Washington crossing the Delaware, and that same might seem very good. After all, we think he was actually there. But was he? Do we know that he was there? How close to the actual event in 1776 was the memoir written? Is it based on a letter that he wrote home in 1776 or 1777? Or did he write it in 1820 or 1830? Lots of veterans of the American Revolution did write memoirs in 1820s and 1830s or write pension applications. How trustworthy are they, given that they occurred so long after the event? Sometimes, men who wrote memoirs plagiarized other memoirs. Or, even more insidiously, they told about facts which they couldn't possibly have seen. For example, in the attack on Delo- on Trenton in December of 1776, perhaps this soldier was marching in a column along the Delaware River, but he describes what happens to the second column, which marched further inland. And how could he possibly know what happened to the second column? Well, maybe he read a book about it, but now it's part of his own memory. He remembers it as if it happened to him but it didn't. And that's why memory and history are not the same thing. So all those questions about sourcing have to be applied to that memoir. Think of another story about Washington crossing the Delaware, the best known representation of that story, Emanuel Leitz's famous painting, which has been copied and parodied dozens of times. We don't always have to use writing 
We can look at a painting and ask who painted this? Who made this? What was the artist's perspective? Why did he paint it? When was it painted? Where was it painted? Is this painting reliable? Why or why not? If we ask this about Emmanuel Weitz's painting of Washington Cross in the Delaware, we might first think, well, this can't possibly be true. But we might find that there are more facts in that painting than we thought possible. For example, it's James Monroe, fifth president of the United States, who in Leutz's painting of Washington Cross in the Delaware is holding the flag. And yeah, in fact, it was James Monroe who accompanied Washington to the first battle of Trenton. In fact, James Monroe was one of the two men wounded at the first battle of Trenton. He was actually there that night when they crossed the Delaware. But eventually, when you ask the other questions, you'll find out that Leutze was an American-German or a German-American. He was born in America and then went to Germany. He painted the Washington Cross in the Delaware after the failed revolutions of 1848 in Germany. He mo modeled it after Americans in Germany who visited his studio. And we realize as we do a little bit more digging, that he painted that painting of Washington Cross in the Delaware, not for an American audience, but for Germans who he hoped would eventually rise up against the monarchs of Germany who controlled a divided land and create a liberal democracy much like that which existed in the United States of America. So we might find that there are lots of facts in that painting, much more, many more facts than we might possibly think, but we find it has a lot more to do with Germany than it actually does with America. It has a lot more to do with the spirit of the American Revolution and what Emanuel Leutze hoped Germans would learn than the actual facts of the American Revolution. So curiously, that very American painting is, in many ways, has more to do with German history. And that's a result of doing some sourcing. Sourcing might seem to be an easy exercise. It's not. Colleagues and I invariably agree that sourcing is the hardest cognitive skill in the historian's toolbox. It's the hardest thing to teach. That's in part because sourcing is close reading, and sourcing requires the ability, therefore, to read the text in front of you very carefully, to see what it says, and, as a professor of mine always urged us, to see what it does not say, to see what you expect to read, and then see if it does say that or not. Sourcing requires the ability to read very carefully. There's a tendency to not only be naive in reading some documents, but sometimes a tendency to be too suspicious, to ignore what we can learn by even reading a biased source. All sources are biased, but how are they biased? Towards what? How much are they biased? The nature even of bias tells us something interesting about the author and about what we're reading. All sources are biased, just as all lumber isn't perfectly straight, but you can still use that lumber to build a beautiful house. Sourcing is the tool that has to be used first in historical thinking. If you can't source one document, you can't make connections to other sources each with their own perspective. And until you do that, you can't really start having fun. That's all for the Commonplace book for this week, the week of April 21st, 2019. A happy Easter to you. 
and we will talk to you next week. Until then, brighten the corner where you are. Thank you.